right. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hope you all had a good week. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I know you did. I know you did. (laughs) Well, we are in the book of Deuteronomy still, and we are in chapter 21. Uh, Dad is... is, uh, has been away this week, and we're going to be picking him up today, and uh, he'll, be, he'll be back next week, so have no fear. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much, Lord, for your love and your grace and your mercy, and we're so thankful for this, this book that we have in front of us, Father, and we know that it was given by you to men, Father, to be handed and passed down, and it was protected by you, Lord, and Uh, and orchestrated and ordained by you, Father, to lead the nations and to bring men to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, Father. And uh, We're so grateful and we're so thankful to have it in our hands today, Father. And we ask and pray that as we study it together today that we would have uh, meekness and humility in our hearts, Father, understanding your greatness and uh, the fact that this message in front of us, Father, not the paper, not the ink, and not the the leather binding and and binding materials, Father, but the message that's in front of each of us, Father, that we so often can take for granted is powerful and it's supernatural and uh, and it defies the odds, Lord, and it stands the test of time and it uh, has defied the skeptics, Father, and and those who have sought to destroy your work, Father, and and to to bring men to darkness, Lord. This, This word, this light that you've given us, Father, has remained uh, because of your might, because of your power, because of your inspiration, Lord. And we pray that we would treat it with that kind of respect, Lord, this morning. And we would sit before you, Lord, and seek to be instructed of you and trained by you, Father, and to be uh, made into the men and women of faith that you have called each of us to be, Lord, to be imitators of Jesus Christ, uh, Lord, and his uh, star- stalwart heart, Father, how that no matter what was before him, behind him, Father, to the side of him, his eyes always were fixed on you and on accomplishing your will for his life, Lord. And he was singular in that, Lord. And then in his love to the people, uh, Lord, all around him, Father, from every circumstance and background and situation, Father, he was unyielding in, in his love, Lord, and his compassion. And we pray that you'd make us like him in that regard as well, Father. Have your way your perfect way in each of us this morning, Father. We pray for all of our friends who are not only here but listening online, Father, and we ask that you would bless them today, Father, and that you would be with them and that you would speak to their hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 21. And of course, once again, uh, Deuteronomy means second law, and this is a reiteration of the laws that God had already given to that first generation of Israelites that had come out of the land of Egypt and had been brought to Mount Sinai and then had traveled through the wilderness to the promised land the first time and then been driven because of unbelief back into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. And now this next generation uh, of Israelites has come to the promised land once again and God is reiterating through Moses the laws that he gave that first generation. And just like that first generation, they have a choice to make. Uh, As all men have a choice to make. 
Here is the law of God, here is the word of God, and here is the will of God. And we can choose to be obedient to it, or we can choose to be disobedient. We can choose to do things God's way, or we can choose to do things our own way. We can choose to see ourselves the way we want to see ourselves, or we can choose to see ourselves the way God sees us. Uh, But make no mistake about it, the decisions that we make regarding these things not only have consequences eternally for, our, for us, but have consequences in the here and now as well. What manner of life do we want to live? Uh, what manner of legacy do we want to lead for our children and for our children's children? What do we want to be thought of as? How do we want to be regarded, uh, most importantly, by God? You know what we have we we of course when we when we die in this in this life or when the Lord receives us to himself we want to hear those words well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of the Lord and we all want that and we all desire that but the practical application of adhering to the word of God and the will of God is not an easy one is it Because always we find within ourselves this perverse law that Paul talks about where our flesh is warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and the two are at odds uh, or at enmity with one another. There's always this battle that's taking place and there's always going to be taking place. Uh, and and, and the, the, the Word of God brings this to light and tells us and it's that we, we have the, the plaques that you may have hanging in your house, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a decision that needs to be made. Uh, but there's, there's consequences, both in the here and now, and of course, eternally. And so God is once again laying out the law for the second generation of Israelites before they go into the promised land and telling them, if you do these things, if you are careful to listen to the words I've given you and to live your lives according to them, you will prosper you will have joy, you will have peace, you will have abundance in the land. Uh, but if you refuse to do the things that I've commanded you to do, and if you reject my laws and throw them off of you, then all of the things that are happening to the nations that are being dispossessed before you are going to come upon you as well. In other words, you're no better than the Canaanites. Your birthright being sons and daughters of Abraham, of Father Abraham, to whom all of the initial promises were given by God concerning the nations and concerning the coming of the Messiah, that doesn't make you better than the nations that are being dispossessed before you. They're being dispossessed before you because of the wickedness that they allowed themselves to abound in and to absolutely unequivocally and wholeheartedly throw off any kind of righteousness or any kind of uh, uh, of, of, of what's godliness that was to be found amongst men. And, and going all the way back to when God was talking to Abraham, he tells him, you're not going into the land yet. The sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its fulfillment. And there's this idea in scripture that for 400 years plus, God was giving the inhabitants of the land of Canaan opportunity to change their ways. Uh, but God is the judge. And people don't like to talk about this stuff. People don't like to hear this stuff. People don't like to talk about heaven and hell. They like to talk about heaven. I shouldn't say they don't like to talk about Everyone likes to talk about heaven. Everyone likes to talk about heaven. And everyone and anyone who dies, no matter what the circumstance or situation, you have all of these well-wishers that come forward. And I understand the heart behind it. I understand the well-meaning behind it and seeking to bring comfort. I understand that. 
But in our well-wishing and in our seeking to bring comfort, oftentimes we're not honest. And the fact of the matter is that Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me. All mankind is separated from God because of our own sin. It doesn't matter if it's little sin. It doesn't matter if it's big sin. Sin separates us from God. Our very sin nature separates us from God. We cannot live in or abide in his presence because of sin. And Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. As the Bible says, he was a propitiation for our sins. He died in our place, and his blood made atonement for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it is putting faith in Jesus Christ and asking him to be the Lord of our lives, which we call, and Jesus referred to when he spoke to Nicodemus as being born again, that gets a man or a woman from the natural, from the physical, into the realm of the spiritual and allows us access to eternal life. There is no other name, the Bible says, given under heaven whereby men must be saved. That's what the scripture says. And Paul had an urgency in his life. And there was, there was a, almost a panic by which he ran from city to city to city to tell as many people as he possibly could and anyone who would hear about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the point where he disregarded completely any inconvenience, any pain, any suffering, any persecution to the point of being beaten, imprisoned, and chains. He completely disregarded that because the only thing that mattered to, to Paul was that as many people as possible, he could tell them about the truth of Jesus Christ. Because God is the righteous judge. He is the righteous judge. And all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will. And when we get all the way to the end of Revelation and the great white throne of judgment comes down from heaven to planet earth, right? And the Bible says that the sea gives up its dead and the earth gives up its dead and books are opened. And the question arises, is their name found written in the Lamb's, that's Jesus Christ, the Lamb's book of life? It's a yes or no. Now, when I stand before God, I can be judged one of two ways. I can be judged according to my righteousness. Oh, no, right? Like, I don't even pretend as though I've lived the life of a good person. I've always been a good person. I've always tried to do the right thing. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. I have my, most of my entire life growing up, and even now, seeking to follow Jesus Christ, I often find myself, I seek to go my own way. I want to do things my own way. Even my righteousness, as the Bible says, is like filthy rags before God. I don't ever want to stand before God and be judged according to my righteousness. And when I have conversations with people, they will say, well, I think that God has to take into account all of the good things that I've done. He does. He does. But he also takes into account sin. And I'm sorry to say that for all of us and for every person who's ever lived, the sin, the weight of sin far exceeds any good deeds we've ever done. So I can either be judged according to my own merit and be found guilty a sinner, or I can be judged according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have our names found written in the Lamb's book of life. That I stand not on my own merit, not before God based on my own righteousness, but because of who Jesus is, 
and that I rest under the sacrifice that he made for, my, for me and for you, and that my sin has been atoned for because of the shedding of his blood. See, that's everything. The rest is just details, as we say, right? The rest is just details. But a choice is given to all men everywhere. A choice is given. Seek after God, seek after the, th the ways of God's righteousness, or seek after our own ways. Do things according to our own heart. And so uh, here we have the laws concerning unsolved murder. We have the law concerning female captives, firstborn inheritance rights, and the law concerning a rebellious child. Uh, and we're going to, between the two services, hopefully get down through, through all of these. But here's the interesting thing. God is dealing with imperfect people. A lot of times we read through the laws uh, of Moses, and, and some of these things you read and you're like, goodness gracious. Like, why, why didn't God just say, listen, just stop doing all of that stuff. Just stop doing all of that stuff. I want you to entirely change your culture and change your society. Here's what you do. Go to, and march to Washington and lobby to have all of the laws changed so that people start living according to God's perfect law. Good luck. Have fun with all that, right? But instead, when we, go, when we look through the Mosaic law, what we find is God is dealing with the society and with the people as they were, okay? Here's the things I'm telling you you must do. Here's the things I'm telling you you must not do. And here's all the ways that you have to adhere to the law to go along with the hardness of your heart that I know is still going to exist regardless of how much you want to follow after me, regardless of how many sacrifices you offer before me. There's a heart, hardness to your heart that's always going to be, and so here are the laws regarding those. Now, the Pharisees had come to Jesus Christ and asked him, uh, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? You know, they were looking for that, that excuse. Uh, and there was different, there was different uh, leanings amongst the scholars of those days. Some thought it was only for marital unfaithfulness, and some thought it was for any uncleanness you found in your wife. You know, you didn't like her cooking. You could divorce your wife for that. You just write her a certificate of divorcement, boom, the eggs are too runny, you're out of here, okay? Uh, and Jesus tells them, except for unmarital, unmarital faithfulness, there is absolutely no excuse for a man to divorce his wife. And they said, well, then why did Moses tell us to write her a certificate of divorcement? Remember Jesus' answer. Because of the hardness of your hearts. Because of the hardness of your hearts. And I knew, God knew, that you were going to deal treacherously with your wives from time to time. And so provisions were made to take care of her. Okay? And that's some of the stuff that we're reading about today. Starting with verse 1 of 21, if anyone is found slain lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to the valley, to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. 
By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So we're going to cover that first. Now, first of all, it is assumed here that a thorough investigation has been done and yielded no culprit, okay? Uh, that's an assumed thing. You don't just go out and see a dead body and go, well, nobody knows nothing, you know, when you go from there. No, there was always an investigation that was to, to, to take place. Remember, God deals with the shedding of blood more seriously than any other sin, right? The, 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 the life of an animal, the life of a human being is in the blood. And if a man sheds another man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. There's something sacred about blood. And God was, of course, setting up blood as being the, the, the vehicle of atonement, right? Ultimately, through Jesus Christ. The life of a man, and by man I mean mankind, the life of a human being is in our blood, we cannot live, as we know, right, without blood. Our blood is precious. We have blood drives. We have all of these things. We always need blood. We need more blood. Blood is life. And blood was given to us as we were created by God. And it was also the means by which atonement for sin was made, which also make it, made it sacred. It's not just in the act of creation that our blood is sacred, but in the act of blood being in the atonement for sins. Because the Bible says, remember, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sins. And what happens when the blood is taken from a thing? It dies. So literally, without the blood being removed from a thing in which, in, which is preceded by death, there can be no remission of sin. There's a sacredness about taking the blood from a thing, a sacredness, and it was only ever to be done according to God's holy, perfect will. You understand? Whether it was the offering of an animal for a sacrifice, whether it was through a person who had broken God's law in which was punishable by death, or ultimately, whether it was the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross at Calvary. It's a sacred thing, and it was to be dealt with as such. So a thorough investigation has taken place, and it has yielded no culprit. We don't know who did this thing. Now, interestingly enough, here is a nation that's governed by God. And they have the Umim and the Thumim, and they have the Levites, and they have the judges, and you have Moses, and yet... We find ourselves in a situation where no culprit can be found. And I find that interesting and fascinating that God could have just said, well, it's that guy. He could have said, well, ask the Umim and, and it, will, it will be told to you. God says, no, there's going to be situations, there's going to be circumstances that there is going to be no answer to. As long as there's human government, as long as there is a nation that is, in, that is populated by and governed by human beings, there's not always going to be answers. There's not always going to be justice. Even in one that seeks to do the will of God 
and to live righteously before God, it's never going to be perfect. You understand? It's never going to be perfect. And these things are going to happen. There's going to be stuff that goes down that you're not going to understand. There's going to be stuff that you're going to have no answer to. And that's when we give it to the Lord. And in this case, it's through this ceremony that takes place. Um, So just because the people were ignorant of the crime's source does not mean that they were automatically cleared of guilt. Blood had been shed in the land, and something had to be done about it, even if no culprit could be found. Now, somebody did it. There was guilt out there amongst the people. And even though they couldn't find it, still atonement needed to be made. So this ceremony would either seal their innocence before God, or it would seal their guilt before God. The guilt of a group or of an individual who knew something about this murder but said nothing, right? Because people are treacherous, right? People can be treacherous. And there's all manner of reasons where which somebody would be put to death and thrown out into the wilderness someplace and nobody knows nothing. And so there's this ceremony that's going to take place. And it's a solemn ceremony that's going to be taking place. And this is where it pertains to the heart of people. Because if I'm a person who's innocent before God, and I'm a person who's a God-fearing person, when I do this ceremony, I'm seeking to make my hands clean. If I know something about this murder, and therefore am not a godly man, and does not have the light and love of God living in my heart, then I'm doing this ceremony as a hypocrite and a liar to cover up my guilt. Either way, either way, a trial's taking place. It's just taking place in a place that we can't see it. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 21 says this, For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. There is going to be no secret when Jesus Christ rules. On that day, when Jesus Christ rules from Jerusalem, there will be no secrets anymore. All of the blood that has been shed down through the ages, the innocent blood that has been shed with no recourse, with no judgment, with no punishment, is going to be answered for in the day of judgment, the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15 says this, that which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Uh, In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 14, you guys know this portion, Um, Jonah, of course, is running from God. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah says, no, I hate the Ninevites, and I want them to go to hell, right? Great preacher, this guy, right? I mean, just the kind of guy you you want to come minister to your flock. I hate the Ninevites. I want them to be judged by God and go to hell. And God says, no, I want you to go and I want you to preach to them. So Jonah says, I'm going to go the opposite direction. So he runs from the Lord. Great idea. Fantastic idea, right? And this is is an account that the Bible gives us that that is one of the most well-known accounts of the Bible. And for good reason, because there's a very important lesson that all mankind must learn from this. You can never run from God. You can never run from God. 
And so Jonah boards this ship and he says, take me any place but here, all right? And it's these mariners, and they're not Israelites, and they're not godly men, but as they go across the sea and this great storm arises, they begin to know this is not a natural storm. What's going on? Somebody on this boat's guilty of something. And they say, draw straws. (laughs) And guess who draws the short straw? Jonah, what did you do? And so Jonah confesses to these unsaved heathen and tells them, throw me overboard. And here's what they say. Jonah 1.14, therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Even the heathen mariners feared the shedding of innocent blood. How far we've come. How far we've come as a society where we no longer fear the shedding of innocent blood. Instead, we celebrate it. It is a wonderful thing. It is a thing to be, to be lifted up. And it is a thing that is to be, instead of treated as what it is, it's, it's, this is progress. This is helpful. This is equality in action. The murdering of the innocent. But the blood of the innocent that goes into the ground will be accounted for as the scripture says. So this particular ceremony, remember, this was not a sacrifice. The heifer was not killed here before the altar of the Lord, okay? There is no atonement for sin happening here. There is no atonement for sin. Whoever the guilty party or parties are, they remain under the condemnation and guilt of the murder that they have committed. This is not a sacrifice, This was ceremonial and signified that the murderer was worthy of death. What do I mean by that? A thing was killed. A thing was killed. Regardless of the fact that they had no idea who did it, and there was no guilty party to be put to death, something had to be done. An atonement of some sort, a price of some sort, had to be paid for the fact that innocent human blood had been spilled. And so they brought this heifer out into a wilderness place to where nothing, no, no ground had ever been plowed, no seed had ever been sown. In other words, a desolate place. And its neck was broken. And then they would wash their hands, the elders of the city, over this dead heifer. And they would say uh, that they had not been guilty of this murder and that they knew nothing about it. The innocent slain for the guilty in a place that was accursed. According to... Uh, tradition, uh, it is believed that once something like this occurred, this, this particular circumstance, there's an unsolved murder, and this ceremony takes place, nobody would ever plow that field. Nobody would ever sow in that area. It would remain desolate uh, forever. Hopefully, it wouldn't often happen too often, right? Uh, the elders washed their hands to signify their innocent of the bloodshed, uh, which, of course, reminds us immediately of Pontius Pilate. For me, when I'm reading through this, and they're washing their hands to show their innocence. Uh, And and of course, you remember when Pontius Pilate washed his hand of the innocence of the blood of Jesus Christ. I am guilty of this man's blood, of course, or he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Of course, he was not innocent of the blood of Jesus Christ, was he? Just because he understood that they had delivered Jesus up for envy, just because he understood and knew that if he didn't put Jesus to death, a riot was going to ensue, in no way acquitted him from doing the right thing. 
Pontius Pilate was guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. He was guilty of it. Um, but in this case, these people are professing, we have nothing to do with this. We know nothing of this matter. And then there's this prayer that's made. Here it is, and we'll read it again. Verse 8. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. All of this was to be done so the people would observe how seriously this was being taken by the Lord and how seriously it was also to be taken by the people. This was not something that was done to be done flippantly. This is a whole ceremony that takes place. Now, if, there, if it happened, you know, two miles from a city, and there was no question as to what the closest city was, those would be the elders that would come out and do this ceremony. Specifically, when it's talking about measuring, is if it was out in the wilderness where it's like, we're not sure which city is closest, notice the painstaking... Uh, things that had to be done, had to take place in order to, to find out which exactly is the closest city to where this dead body is and, and, and to be done according with what the Lord had commanded. Uh, all blood is precious as is godly sorrow over evil, whether it is ours or not. This is what Matthew Henry, uh, the great old commentator, says. When we hear of the wickedness of the wicked... We have need to cry earnestly to God for mercy for our land, which groans and trembles under it. We must empty the measure by our prayers, which, uh, which others are filling by their sins. Isn't that something? Matthew Henry, what he's saying here is that we ought to be in a constant state of brokenheartedness for the wickedness that's taking place in our land that goes unanswered, that goes unanswered. And we ought to be standing in the gap for the people of this, of this land that we live in and for our nation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 says this, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. There's a, there's a thing, remember, of course, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes concerning the man that was in their church that had taken his father's wife and was living with his father's wife, and they were proud of it. See how forward-thinking we are. And Paul says, of course, he points out this is great wickedness, and that person, if they're not willing to repent, has to be put out of the church. And the Corinthian church was obedient to Paul's word, which was really God's word, and put that person out of the church. And now in 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes back to the church, he is commending them for that because it produced righteousness, that there was a wickedness that had taken place even though it wasn't their wickedness. And they had dealt with it or at least mourned over it and done everything in their power to address it and that was seen before God as a vindicating affair. Interesting. Uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, verse 10 of chapter 21. This is a, this is a, tough, this is a tough one. <laughs> when you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head 
and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. Now, why do you suppose God had to make this law? Why do you suppose God had to make this law? Here is God, again, working with an ancient people in an ancient culture that did not have the sensibilities that we have today as it relates, in some ways, to human rights, okay? We read this, and it is abhorrent to us. It is absolutely abhorrent to us. The idea, right, that I would go over to Sugarbush and sack the place, right, and just start st taking wives, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh, this is awful. This is terrible. Uh, this is the culture. This is the civilization. This is the world that God was dealing with. Let's see. Um, <laughs> we can acknowledge great things done by wicked men. We should never either venerate men, nor should we disavow great things that they have accomplished because they were wicked men. And here's, here's the point of what I'm trying to make in this entire thing. This is not about the people. This is about God showing mercy. Now, in those days and in that culture, in the heart of battle and the frenzied bloodlust that was produced sometimes in godless men, atrocities were committed. That was just a fact and state of the, of the matter of how things were. In those ancient battles and in those ancient cultures, it was brutal. It was brutal. If you ever have time to study the practices of the Ninevites, whom Jonah hated so much, you'll realize why he hated them so much. The things that they did when they went into battle and when they conquered another people were absolutely awful, awful. And of course, one of the more common atrocities of ancient times was, I'm going to use the word ravishing, the ravishing of women whose people were being conquered. This is something that took place. It was something that happened. Even going forward into the kingdom years, when the people are going further and further into idolatry, where God is getting to the place where he's going to turn them over to the nations of the world for judgment, he warns them of this. Uh, through the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah, your children are going to be dashed against the stones. Your women are going to be taken and ravished. The wickedness and the abominations that take place in these other nations, I have sought to protect you from and keep you from. But if you throw off the yoke of my law and you throw off my righteousness and you reject me, and you put yourselves amongst the heathen, then when they deal with you, you're going to be treated as such. And I'm not going to be able to protect you from that. God instead, instead here commands the men to go through careful steps to preserve the purity of the women so conquered by them. Now that probably doesn't help us all the way, the fact of the matter is, is they're going into a place, they're putting the city to the sword, and they're just taking these women captive. But what God is saying is when this happens and when this takes place, this is how you are to do it. This is what it is to look like. So when a, when a man would go in and he was a part of this battle and he would be having this intense warfare and the city is being put to the sword and all of the idols burned and all this is taking place. And now there's this woman, 
that he looks at, and she's a beautiful woman, and he's in the heat of the battle, God commands him to stop and have a thought process. To stop and have a thought process. If this is a woman that you want to marry, which of course is not God's perfect intention, because presumably all of these men already were married, or most of these soldiers were already married, but if this is a woman that you intend to marry, to make your wife, then these are the steps that you have to go through in order to make that happen. Do I want to marry this woman or am I acting in vile passion? God wants us to think. After she has shaved her head and stripped herself of all her adornments and fine clothing and has gone around weeping and mourning for her parents for a month, we'll see how your heart feels about her then. You see what happened here is God is saying all of the beautiful hair on her head, I want it to be shaved off. The nails, the adornments, I want it all stripped bare of her. And I want her to be left alone to mourn her parents for a month. After that, if you still want to make her your wife, that's what you will do. And she would become a daughter of Israel. She would become a wife and mother and an Israelite. That's the way it was, and that's the way it was to be taken place. And if after a month you decide, you know what? I really, really didn't have love for this woman. We weren't star-crossed. It was just me having, having lust in my heart. Then you let her go. You don't sell her. You don't treat her brutally. You let her go. You've already humbled her enough. You let her go free to go back to her people. Um. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough portion. One of the problems I think that we have in our generation in dealing with sin uh, is that we countenance it. We countenance it, which we're going to cover uh, more in verse 18. But going back to what I said earlier, uh, the acknowledgement of great things done by wicked men, um, and, and, and I don't want to, I'm not meaning to be political in any way, shape, or form, because these are kind of like hot topics in our, in our, in our time that we live in and stuff like that. But it, it, it's always interesting to me, for example, okay, and, and quite frankly, it, it doesn't, maybe it does a little bit, but it, in, in, the, in the scheme of things, in the scope of things, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. I really don't have a, a, a dog in the fight, okay? I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm looking for the return of Jesus Christ, okay? I love America. I love the Constitution. I love all this stuff, but at the end of the day, I'm about God's kingdom, and I'm about getting as many people there as I possibly can, right? And I will never allow my political beliefs or the way I lean politically to get in the way of me showing people Jesus Christ to the best of my ability, okay? So I'm not trying to make a point about any political thing. I'm just trying to make a point about the nature of human beings, okay? So what we have taking place in our culture now is a, 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 a concerted effort to go into the past and find people who were evildoers or who did bad things and to erase them, right? We want to tear down statues. Uh, you know, we want to turn Christopher Columbus into some, some evil, vile scum who, who must never be honored in any way, shape, or form. We should never speak of him. And I understand the concept because the bottom line is, is some of our founding fathers and Christopher Columbus were guilty of doing horrible things, right? That was the, it's like, it, it's, to me, it's like this, like Christopher Columbus, don't you understand? Christopher Columbus was a slave trader. Really? Really? In 1492? That's shocking to me. Of course he was a slave trader. 
That's what they did. You went to a new place, you took slaves, and you sold them. That doesn't, that doesn't make it okay. I'm not trying to condone Christopher Columbus's behavior or activity in any way, shape, or form. All I'm saying is, Columbus discovered the Americas. <laughs> Who cares, right? We should neither venerate him nor seek to completely disregard anything he's ever done, okay? I don't know, hopefully that makes sense to you. The whole point I'm trying to make is not to countenance the thing, not to countenance the thing. There's those things that are wicked before the Lord, those, those things that are righteous before the Lord, and then there's just us trying to live before the Lord in a perverse generation, okay? Uh, it goes on and on. I mean, you can go down through the Founding Fathers. You can, you can study the life of Mohammed Gandhi, uh, you know, and you can find all sorts of things about these people that were off-putting or straight up and down wrong. You know, Winston Churchill, he was a great leader, but if you were from India, he was a monster, okay? He was a monster. People who are from, that, from, from India, they, they don't look at Winston Churchill as being some great hero uh, of, of World War II and a leader of Great Britain. They look at him as being a monster, that doesn't mean that he's not guilty, and it also doesn't mean that he wasn't responsible for doing great things. The point that I think that God wants us to get to in our judgment and in how we deal with the world around us is not to countenance it, okay? And this is the point that I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to, to, to make a political statement here. Those things don't matter. What matters to me is this. Why are you here? Why are we here? What has God called us to do? Has God called you to be the best American you can be? Has God called you to be the best fighter for freedom and justice and equality that you can be? Or has God called you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's the point that I'm, that's the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, and, and I make that point within the framework of this happening because there's nothing about this circumstance, right? There's nothing about these circumstances. When we get into the book of Judges, right? And the tribe of Benjamin gets into all sorts of wickedness and iniquity, and God has the nation, the other tribes go to war against the tribe of Benjamin. And there's massive casualties that take place on both sides because God's bringing judgment on both sides for their wickedness. And then after that, the tribe of Benjamin is instructed to go into some of the other tr tribes of their own brethren and steal a bunch of women and make them their wives so that the tribe of Benjamin can continue. In God's economy, there's nothing about that that is okay. What I'm saying to you, what I'm saying to you is that in spite of ourselves, in spite of the darkness and the wickedness of the hearts of mankind, God's will can be accomplished. That's the point, that's the point I'm trying to make. Hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad. I don't think it was very good, but hopefully it wasn't too terrible. Okay, uh, verse, well, let's see, what time is it? It's 10 o'clock, so we're going to stop there. And we'll pick, up, we'll pick up second service. I hope I didn't throw you guys off the deep end there with that last, that last part. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And uh, Lord, we ask and pray that you would help us to, with all of our hearts, Father, just seek to live before you, uh, Lord, and to regard all of the people of this planet, Father, and all of the things that we see happening around us through your eyes, Father. Uh, and not according to our own. We pray that you would help us to be compassionate and loving and merciful in our hearts, Father, just as Jesus Christ uh, was to the people around him, Father. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to shine the light and the truth of your word, uh, Lord, and to tell as many people as we possibly can 
about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father. Um, we believe that we're in the last days, Lord. We believe that Jesus is coming soon, Father, and we pray that you would help us in our hearts to act accordingly, to live our lives accordingly, Father, and to seek uh, as much as we can, Father, to reflect the image of Jesus Christ and to tell as many people as we can about him, Father. We pray that that would be the goal of our hearts, Lord, in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.